Well, good morning. Morning. Why don't y'all stand with me as we prepare to read God's word? Uh, if you're just joining us, or if this is your first time, we're in the third week of a series that we're calling Community Under Construction. We're going through the book of Titus, and really the aim of this is um, church, any church that you go to, uh, is more like a construction site than a movie. People go to a movie to sit back, to be entertained, to yeah, check things out, to enjoy themselves, and then they leave home and they talk about how good of a time or how bad of, or how bad of a time that they had. They go to consume uh, a finished product, but a church is not like that. A church is like a, a construction site. We go to get to work on a project that is still in the work. Um, and we would do well to think of any church like that. So we're in our third week, and um, we're going to talk once again about the role of the pastor and the role of a leader. So if you would, turn me to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 5 through 16. We did verses 5 through 9 last week. This week we'll spend the bulk of our time on 10 through 16. Starting in verse 5, it says this. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word um, that you are a God that protects us, and your word does the same, Father. Help us to enjoy the fact that we have in you such a great leader that cares for us, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can take your seat. There are two kind of problems in the world. Um, those that go away when you ignore them, and those that get worse when you ignore them. 
we've got a 15-month-old daughter at home, and she's in the stage right now where she's starting to, to, to throw tantrums. And what we've learned is that when she starts to throw them, I'm going to put you in a nice, soft space so you're not going to hit your head, and I'm going to ignore you. I'm just going to let her know that's not the way that you get the attention that you want from me. And after not getting what she wants, then she's going to find out that tantrums aren't how you get what you want in my house, right? That's the type of problem that you can fix by ignoring it. A few weeks ago, she had a double ear infection, and she woke up one morning and was real fussy. And uh, so at first, we thought it was tantrums, and we started to ignore her, but she, she kept on going. So Chandra and I debated if we were going to go to the doctor, and we finally took her. And what he said was, um, I'm glad that you brought her in when you did, that we caught it. And what we found out is that ear infections don't just get better by themselves. They get worse. And he's like, he's seen some get so bad that the eardrum had actually popped and it could cause long-term damage. Tantrums may be fixed by ignoring the problems, but infections have to be addressed head on. When the Bible talks about bad leadership in the context of a church, it talks about it in terms of it being an infection. It is something that has to be addressed. We talked about this last week. We all have horror stories of bad leaders, especially as it relates in the context of the church. You know the frustration of depositing trust with somebody and withdrawing tears. I give them my all, I give them my trust, and they re respond and they hurt me. And so what Paul's going to do right here is he's going to make sure that this church knows that there's good things that God has called us to do out there in the world. And we want to get to those good works out there in the world. But before we as a church can get to those good things out there in the world, we have to make sure that the church is good in here. And as we look through the scriptures, one thing that we see is that the history of God's people has often been a history of its leaders. Leadership, especially in the context of the church, is not just something you fall victim to. You have a role to play in all of this. And know that the one agency that God had left here on this earth to display what he's like more clear than any other group is the church. So if the church displays a distorted picture of what God's like, it's going to justify people who don't want God in their rejection of him. And we're going to find out that people reject God for the wrong reasons. God's called us to be a part of a church, to get to work in the world. So we want to make sure that the church functions rightly. And, and, and in order for that to take place, the church has to have good leaders. Last week we talked about good leaders aren't hard to find if you know where to look. That we look, is a man faithful in his closest relationships? What does his family life look like? Is he fruitful in his character? Does he actually act like a Christian and when people get close to him, do they want to be more like Jesus? And is he firm in his convictions? Does he have the ability to always come back to God's word? So if last week was the 
resume of a faithful pastor, a faithful pastor serves. This week is going to be a job description. And the faithful pastor not only serves, but a faithful pastor protects. So the point, my sermon in a sentence is this. Good leaders protect the church from bad ones. God gives the church good leaders to protect the church from bad ones. It's easy to spot good leaders if you know where where to look. Uh, But in the same vein, it's easy to spot bad leaders if you know where to look. So I think that this text has two main points. How do you spot bad leaders? How do you stop bad leaders? How do you spot them? How do you stop them? First things first, how do we spot them? As the Bible talks about bad leadership, um, it tells us where we are to look to identify the credibility of somebody's leadership, especially in the context of a church. And the picture that's going to be painted here is one of a hurricane. All right? The eye of a storm is very, very peaceful. What surrounds it is full of all types of destruction. Sometimes it's easy for us to look at somebody and they're eloquent and they're gifted, and they seem nice, and they seem kind and intelligent and smart, and in their immediate vicinity, it seems like things are peaceful. It seems like it's good. But that may just be the eye of the storm. What Paul tells this church is don't just look at what takes on right there in the eye, but look at what surrounds them. Look here at verse 10. He he says this, look, for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to gain money dishonestly. The very first thing that he brings up is that at the center, things may look peaceful, but these guys are storms that are ruining entire households. How? Merely by what they teach. There's this old rhyme that goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a little lie that we give to kids um, to protect them from name-calling so that they don't think that name-calling is a big deal. But inadvertently, what it does is I think it makes you and I underestimate the power of words. How many of y'all know words are powerful? So as Paul talks, the very first thing that he brings up is he's like, there's this group of guys, and he starts off and he, and, and, and he says this. Look at the first adjective that he uses. For there are many rebellious people. The very first thing that he talks about, the very first way that you can spot this kind of a false teacher or a bad leader is look at how they themselves relate to authority. The very first word that he'll use is rebellious. They're always marching to the beat of their own drum, speaking as if leadership is something that you can graduate from. And what I want you all to know is this. Somebody that has never been good at following people will never be good to their own following. Somebody that has never themselves submitted and been led 
will never be good at leading. And so the first thing that he tells them to look out for is these people that are rebellious, that are constantly seeking their own position of authority and power. And then he says this, you know, they're full of empty talk and deception. They speak and they say a whole lot, but they say a whole lot about nothing, but they say it very well. Have you ever been to the store and bought like the like big plus size bag of chips and it looks really, really full? Um, and then you get home and you pop open the top and you see that there's seven chips at the bottom of the bag. It seems like all of the stuff that's that that bag has a lot of substance and sustenance. Until you actually look inside and you see that it's 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 flat and it's empty. And here's what I want you to see. As Titus is going to talk about this false teaching, he doesn't focus on the specific nuances of what they teach, right? So the book of Galatians in your Bible, Paul's going to present a whole case about these false teachers and how you should combat this teaching of Judaism or any system that would set itself up where you need to do more to be uh, seen as accepted by God. Paul's going to lay all that out there. Here, he's not going to go into all that depth. What he's going to do is he's going to give you more the nature, right? The type of person this teaching is embodied in. Because Paul wants us to look not primarily at what they're saying, but who's saying it. And one thing that we're very, very clear of is that these birds of a feather flock together. Their closest relationships, the closest relationship of a faithful pastor is one where he's faithful to his wife and his kids. The people that find themselves within his household are built up. But look at what he says here in verse 11. It's necessary to silence them, for they are ruining entire households. That a faithful pastor and a false teacher both come in with a hard hat and a hammer. One comes in to construct and build up. The other one comes in to tear down. One of the quick ways to spot them is look at the people that listen to them. Take an account of the lives of the people that are following their advice and just look and say, Are they prospering spiritually? Physically, people can prosper by accident. Physically, you can prosper by accidentally hitting the right numbers. Spiritually, you don't prosper by accident. And so what he's saying is this group is ruining households. We'll get to why later. And then he goes on to their character. That what you do is you take a step back and you ask yourselves, at the end of the day, who's really serving who? It says there's this group of folks who teach what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. Again, he wants to attack the motives and not the minutiae of what they teach. But as you look through the text in verse 11, he'll bring up this phrase, the circumcision party, right? In verse 
13, if you drop down there, he says this, this testimony is true for this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. So what you can kind of piece together here is that Paul seems to be addressing at this time some itinerant Jewish teachers who basically are starting to teach this church in order to really be accepted by God. There's these things about the Jewish law that are obscure that we found out that you have to do in order for God to love you more, in order for you to really be Christian, in order for you to really be part of the inside group. That may not mean much to us because as I look out here, I would surmise that a lot of us aren't Jewish. Um, But what you find is that in every era, in every age, this same thing reads true. There's always somebody or some group that presents some new knowledge, some fresh word, some new way for you to be closer to God. Some new thing that you have to do, some new group that you have to be a part of, some new initiative that you have to undertake in order for God to really be pleased with you. And what you find at the heart of it is, I'm willing to tell you so long as you sow a seed and help me out. I'm willing to tell you so long as you come alongside and support what it is that I have to do. And so what you'll find is a group of folks rising to prominence, claiming to have the gospel, but they're charging people for it. Rising to prominence, claiming to have the gospel, but they always seem to be doing so much better than the people that they're trying to help. Rising to prominence, claiming to have the gospel and within the household that God had created that's supposed to be unified, all of us are even at the foot of the cross. They're constantly setting up tiers of Christianity. So in verse 12, he brings up this. And when you first read it, it seems like he's being racist. Paul says this, one of their very own prophets said, look, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he goes on and says, this testimony is true. It seems like, dang, Paul, you're just going to put a whole category of people in like that. Let me give you a little bit of context. There was a guy in this time named Epimenides, and what he did was he coined this phrase as he talked about what Cretans are like. It was a broad generalization of the worst things about a culture. It would be like you and I. Um, my wife and I were in New York this past week, and we were trying to cross the street, um, and this lady was pushing a baby in a stroller, and her, like, six-year-old son had his scooter and was going across the street. And as we go through the crosswalk with the light on, people are honking their horn for them to get out of, uh, of the street. And, and she looks back and she's like, yo, New Yorkers are so rude, right? So, like, it's just, this is a phrase like that. He's saying, yo, this is the worst things about this culture. And what Paul does is he looks back and he takes this and says, 
Yo, this is, this is true of these guys. At the end of the day, the new life that is ours in Christ, the new life that would cause somebody to break from the cultural patterns that they were raised up in and live this new life, Paul's saying they don't have that. They fit in too well with the surrounding culture. The character. Who's serving who? And then lastly, Paul tells them to look at their convictions. They're untrustworthy. Look at verse 13. A testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. Here's one way that you can spot out somebody who claims to have the gospel but has a false one. Is their message constantly full of merely commands and regulations about things that you need to do in order to be right or, and be seen as good in God's sight? Or is this statement full of celebrating and, or celebration and rejoicing in what Jesus did to make us right with God? Not saying that we don't have to do things. We do do things, but everything that we do comes on the tail end of our celebration and rejoicing and not before. So the holy lives that we're called to live come as a result of what God has done. The repentance that we've been called to offer for our sin doesn't come so that we can earn God's forgiveness. It comes after God has already provided the means for us to be forgiven. There's this group that just wants to, to, to weigh you down with stuff. That at the end of the day, they are not shepherds that are feeding God's flock. They are snakes and wolves trying to feed on God's flock. Not only that, but this text ends with the fact that it's not just that they are infected but it's there contagious. Look here at verse 14 to 16. 15, sorry. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. What's he trying to say there? I think a picture will help us first. Um, yeah, I had friends that a few months ago, um, uh, they got really, really sick to the point where um, they were real sick and their sickness could have had an effect on their child. As parents, they want to do good and care for their child, but because they were infected with this sickness, they were unfit to do that good work. Caring for their child would have merely passed on the sickness that they had towards them and it would have been destructive. So for a moment, until they were healed, they were quarantined, set aside. You're not fit to do this good work right now. This is what Paul is saying with this group of folks that purity, 
doesn't just come by the commands that we keep and what we do. Jesus would attest to the same truth that what defiles a person doesn't come from outside of them. Things that they do and don't do, what defiles a person comes from inside of them. And if you're infected with some kind of a sickness, what you find is that it's easy to pass that on to people. And here's the thing that I want you all to know. Being contagious, it doesn't take much contact with people and it doesn't take a long amount of time or a huge platform for somebody else to contract that same disease. This is Paul's caution with false teaching in the life of the church. That it doesn't take a huge platform. It doesn't take somebody finding their way into the church weaseling their way onto a platform to affect the entire church. All it takes is somebody unchecked finding their way into a household. And as the household goes, the community goes. I don't think it's called the nuclear family for no reason. Uh, If you know anything about a nuclear bomb, and I don't know much, I know what Wikipedia told me. Uh, But what you find is that with a nuclear bomb, um, the, like, spark that creates this, this huge blast is not big. It's manipulation at an atomic level that can level entire cities. So when God talks about the family and the household, I think it's so that you and I see it doesn't take much. So this isn't the solution, but this is a quick way to start. One of the things that you and I can can do en route to a solution is this. We have to become very discerning listeners, readers, and watchers. Here's what I mean by that. We live in a day and age where there's so much access to stuff that's passed off as truth, as gospel, as edification, as things that will build you up. There's so much that we consume on a daily through Twitter, through YouTube videos that we don't even click, just joints that are off to the side that we find our way to to links that are passed on back and forth. And it's easy for us to consume based on how enjoyable it is. But I do want you to know that there's a great deal of error that can be stuffed into a blanket of eloquence. Just because it rhymes doesn't mean that it's true. Just because it's pithy doesn't mean that it's true. Just because it sounds good doesn't mean that it's true. Just because it makes you feel good doesn't mean that it's true. One of the ways that we can become discerning listeners and readers is just to find ourselves asking a few questions. Whenever you're hit with some statement or some truth, before you think about how it makes you feel, how good it sounded, how funny it was, ask yourself, all right, What exactly was being said? If you can't restate simply what was being said, you probably don't really know what was
was being said. And if you don't know what was being said, you probably shouldn't adopt what was being said. What was being said? And then two, is it true or is it false? Is it right or is it wrong? And then three, how do I know if it's true or false? Am I going with my gut? Or is there some other authoritative source that can guide me? What was actually said? What did they say? Is it true or is it false? How do I know? What's it based on? So this is what Paul calls us to first to just spot it. Bad leaders are abound, especially in the context of the church. And what's the answer? And it's just that Paul tells this church, listen, God gives the church good leaders to protect them from bad ones that a large part of the job description of a pastor is not just to serve a church and to help build them up, but it's to protect them from forces that would tear them down. Look at the end of verse 9. He says this, that a pastor should hold fast to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and look, look at this word here, and to refute those who contradict it. That word refute right, is not just telling somebody to stop. It's not the same word as a rebuke. It's not saying just shut up, but it's showing the emptiness. It's not saying, it's not just saying don't listen to them. It's opening up the bag of chips so that everybody sees that it's not as full as they think that it is. So he calls these pastors to stop them, and I want you to hear this, first of all, by confrontation, verse 11. It's necessary to silence them. Verse 13, the testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply. That word silence is supposed to give you the picture of putting a muzzle on a dog. Everybody that says things that makes you feel good is not telling you the truth. Everybody that says hard things that make you feel bad is not telling you a lie. And part of the role of a pastor is to protect his church. So at the end of the day, as we do our best to, to try to serve y'all, I don't want y'all to feel like we're hating on people. That's not what we're trying to do. We have nothing to prove. Nothing to gain. We're up here. We've spent our lives trying to build out this church because at the end of the day, and you'll hear us say this time and again, our goal is we want to do all that we can to prepare you to meet Jesus one day. If that takes place, mission accomplished. Praise God. But part of what that involves is confrontation. Harsh words. Things that may seem mean or harsh on the outset. But being mean or harsh is not the end goal. Look at verse 13. Right? That what you want is a good pastor that is that, that, that is courageous, that is going to run, or, or that, that won't run from a fight, 
But you don't want one that's contentious, that always seems to be at the middle of some controversy or some fight. What you want is this confrontation that's clothed in compassion. Look at the so that. Whenever you see a so that in your Bible, it gives you the reason or purpose. Verse 13 says this. Look, this testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. Here's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that you want a good leader. And one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to call out falsehoods, not just to protect the church, but with the hopes of saving the person who finds themselves caught up in that same falsehood. That in that, the goal is to mirror our very God who Ezekiel 33 says this. Tell them as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? One thing that we have to to know about the God that we serve, y'all, is that God is not some divine hitman taking contracts out on people and enjoying the destruction that he causes. God would much rather convert his enemies. That's the beauty of the gospel, y'all. The beauty of the gospel is that we have a God who has every right to kill the enemies that had opposed him, but instead of that, do you know what he offers? Forgiveness. Mercy. Love. Acts. 8.3, here's what I love about the the book of Acts. In Acts 8.3, you have this guy Saul, all right? Saul is Paul that wrote this letter. Saul was his name before he got saved. After he got saved, he changed his name to Paul. Acts 8.3 tells us that the apostle Paul was this Jewish man who was frustrated by the birth of Christianity And in Acts 8.3, it tells us that he's actually going into households, dragging people out. But do you know what God does to this destroyer of households? He knocks him off a horse. And then he shows him his kindness. He could have killed him. He could have stopped his life like that. He could have paid him back. He could have sought vengeance, but he doesn't. He offers something so much better. That's mercy. And then what Paul does, Paul spends the rest of his life showing communities the emptiness of what it is to build a community on our works and not Christ's work. Here's the emptiness that comes when you're trying to build a church, a family, a friendship, any type of community on good works that you do. People that succeed in those good works grow prideful and they say, you should be like me. People that fail in those good works grow pitiful and they say, woe is me. 
and everybody is looking at themselves and nobody is looking at Jesus, the only one who faithfully fulfilled all that God had commanded. It's empty. Any community built like that is going to be torn apart. So what Paul does, a man who had achieved greatness and prominence for all of the good things in the eyes of the world that he did, he spends time and tells this church, like so many other churches, the most important thing, y'all, is not your, per- is not your performance. And more than that, your performance won't really change until you start to live out of gratitude for what God has done. Try all that you can to try to earn his favor, and you're going to find that it's a bottomless pit. But once you live out of the fact that I haven't earned God's favor, I've earned his wrath, but Jesus came and earned his favor completely for me, and now full and free forgiveness is offered. If I turn from my sin, the path that led to emptiness, and I turn from him, what you find is this whole new freedom to live in. I don't have to prove myself to anybody because I'm already accepted by God. I don't have to fight to prove myself to the Twitter mob that's trying to prove how Christian they are in what they care for. I can care for those very things out of a gratitude, not out of grumbling and complaining all the time. What this also helps us see, a God that saves his enemies, is that it should make all of us biblically optimistic. What I mean by that is that nobody is too far gone. Even the biggest proponents of the things that would take people away from the faith are not worthy for us to wave the white flag or put a fork in them and say that they're done. What we say is, no, 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 listen. C.S. Lewis says, out of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And so we look at our own lives, and I look at myself as a kid that had a pastor for a dad who grew up in church, and I look back and I think of, um, yeah, I don't look back on my pastor and think of all the good things that I did. I think of uh, all the dirt that I was involved in, and then all the guys that I brought to, to church and justified in their conscience that it was okay. And I would be driven to pity unless I remember that we serve a God um, who, who takes people like Paul that were murderers and turns them into martyrs. Those that tried to stomp out the faith, Paul gave up his body for that faith, and they end up becoming the best of witnesses. You know. For the Christian, this is, this is what's true of you. You can never give up hope. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that this same story can be yours. If you feel a sense of emptiness and frustration, always working to try to get into God's good graces, but always being driven to a sense of emptiness because you just know that you're not quite there. I I just want you to know that you're in a room with a bunch of people who aren't quite there. 
but you're with a bunch of people that are riding on the coattails of Jesus who is quite there. And the pleasure that we get from God, we receive by faith that when Jesus died, we somehow died with him. So that when he raised, we somehow were right there with him. And God looks and gives his pleasure. And so what Paul's trying to help us see is that, you know, good leaders in the life of the church protect us from the bad ones. God loves his family too much to let them get ravaged by bad leaders. And God loves his enemies too much to let them sabotage themselves. So if we know that to, to be the case, that God protects the church by providing the church good leaders, here's what we're called to do. Two things. Choose the leaders that you trust. And then trust the leaders that you choose. Choose the leaders that you trust. And then trust the leaders that you choose. Both of the applications have to deal with leadership because at the end of the day, I'm primarily concerned with how you relate to leadership. Do you know why? Because all of us have a checkered past when it comes to relating to leadership. All of us have a problem with submission. We would like to excuse it on, well, it's hard for me because of the inadequacies of this leader. But at the end of the day, our aversion to leadership says less about the examples that we've had in the past, good or bad. And it says more about just the state of what's inside of our heart. Biblically, this is the case. Think back to Adam and Eve, who had a perfect leader. And they had no reason to distrust him. And they found a way to distrust him. And they didn't just find a way to distrust God, but they found a way to blame him for the very wrong that they did. Israel, when they were taken out of the desert, the nation again when the prophet Samuel came up, and they had attested that he was blameless, they just didn't want him on and on and on, all the way to Jesus. God once again reinserts himself into the world in the form of a perfect man, or God inserts himself in the form of a man, and people still found a way to distrust him. Biblically, it's true, you and I have a problem with submission. Personally, it's true. How many of y'all as grown-ups think back to when you were a kid and say, oh, snap, my mom and dad really were just trying to protect me. You and I have a problem, not just with the bad leaders, but with somebody telling us what to do because we think that we know what's best for ourselves. And this, it's at that very level that the gospel is all about how you and I submit to leadership. It is you and I having the sensibility to say, when I direct my own life, I steer it off of a cliff. When I let somebody else perfect, God himself direct my own life, he promises to steer me to heaven. I know that I think I know what's good for me, 
But inside, I know that I don't know what's good for me. In the gospel, in the gospel, in accepting the good news of Jesus Christ, we say, I'm fine to let somebody else lead and steer this ship. And we know that any truth that we proclaim with our mouth but deny with our works is a truth that we really don't know, right? To know and not to do is not to know at all. So as we sit back and reflect on the fact that God has promised to lead us out of this path towards death to life, we can be reminded that in the same way that word is true, all of his words are, are, are true. And biblical leadership in the context of the church is his idea. He set the criteria and he's made the provision. So with that being said, choose the leader's you trust. And here's what I mean by that. Every time you choose a church, you choose the leaders of that church to care for your soul. That is not a decision that you should go into lightly. That is not a decision that you should go into after hearing somebody preach and walking up to the front and filling out a card. The history of God's people has been a history of its leaders. You do your due diligence and make sure that you're sitting not with perfect men, but with godly men. Be generous with your praises, right? It's a hard role. Be generous with the things that go well, but be honest and vocal with your reservations. One of the ways that we can choose leaders as a church is to join a church and recognize those that are there. One of the other ways that we can choose the leaders in a church is to help raise them up right where we are. What I love about God is that within the context of a church, leadership is locally sourced. It does not have to be outsourced. I go to the grocery store to buy meat and to buy grapes because I do not farm and I do not have cows. So I go to somebody else to give me what I need. Here in the context of the church, God has provided all of the things that we need here. But I want you to know you have a responsibility to help raise up leaders in the church. By the time I was born, I had already been a member of my church for nine months old because my parents, for, for nine months, because my parents were faithful to bring me into the church. Do you believe that back there, where our kids are, are people that may one day lead God's church for the better or for the worse? If you believe that, then you know that it's not some duty to be back there. It's, it's, it's a privilege to be back there planting those gospel seeds because you never know when they'll bear fruit. I was 18 years old on a dirt road in Nigeria with a gun to the back of my head. Not sure of where I would go when I died. And nobody out there on that road at 18 years old came up and proclaimed the gospel to me. But all of those seeds that were planted when I was in children's church for my whole life came flooding into the back 
of my head. I want you to know, church, you have a responsibility. You have a privilege to start now. If you neglect it or ignore it, it's a problem that will only get worse. But if you address it, you would be surprised. At the, or, or at, at the crop that God can grow through the faithful seeds that have been planted. Not just back there, but we constantly have young men um, come through here uh, that have a desire for pastoral ministry. And we want to do our best to help to equip and train them. As we talk about things here in the near future, we hope that you would partner with us. Here's another way to choose leaders. Um, if you're not convinced that the leaders are there for your good, run. Or stay and try to change the leadership in the context of a church. If you find yourself at a church and there is no clear pathway for people that are a part of the church to hold the pastors accountable and to change them, run. Don't just choose leaders that you trust. Trust leaders that you choose. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean blindly following what they say. Right? Acts chapter 17, Paul says this, the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word of God with eagerness and examined the scripture daily to see if the things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well. What it says is it ties their belief to critically listening to what's being said from up front. Trust is not blindly taking what's said. Trust is bolstered when it comes from more than one source. And what we're saying is all of what we say from up here comes from in here. So if you don't find it in here or you have problems or you think that it contradicts, examine, do your work. Leadership in the context of a church is not just something that you fall victim to. Trust is bolstered when it comes from more than one source. Here's, uh, here's five things that it does mean. Trusting leadership means this. Confrontation or correction. When, when you see us tripping or you think that we are, you approach us, pull us aside, and say, hey, you're tripping or I think that you are. Two. Not just taking advice, but seeking advice. Um, if the only time we're brought into a wrestle that you have is after you've already made the decision, it really doesn't help you and it really doesn't help us. We want to be involved in the process, not to tell you what to do, but to do our best to make sure that you think like the Lord thinks. Three, assuming the best. Choosing trust over suspicion. If you think that something has gone wrong, at least give us the opportunity to explain ourselves. 
If you're not a part of this church and you find yourself at a church where you constantly feel like you're being burnt by the leaders that are there at the, the, the church, um, don't have conversations in your head and treat somebody based on what they said in your head. Give them the freedom to respond for themselves. Fourth, know the gospel. One of the best ways that you can trust the leadership at a church is to know, all right, what's the yardstick that we are measuring faithfulness by? It does you no good not to know the content of the gospel. And fifthly, trust the leadership with um, intimate and personal details of your life with the appropriate boundaries. What we're saying is, as pastors, we feel like we have a special privilege and responsibility to care for your souls, and we want to do that. But we can only care for your souls as much as we know. So with that said, if you don't feel comfortable in just a convo with one of us, bring somebody else that you feel comfortable with. But at the end of the day, don't suffer, don't wrestle in silence. Leadership is a very good gift from God meant to protect the church from very very bad outcomes. And the beauty is when we find ourselves under leadership that we trust, we praise it. But when we find ourselves in the midst of leadership that we don't, um, you don't have to wait four years before it changes. You have an obligation, duty, and responsibility to make sure that this church, Cornerstone, is known in our community for not having perfect leaders but leaders of integrity, leaders that are blameless. It's something that we can't do by ourselves. It's something that we need your help with. The effects are far-reaching, and it's an opportunity for us to counteract the narrative that exists in the world, that the church is full of a bunch of liars, beasts, and gluttons. We're imperfect. We're forgiven, and we're family, and we want to offer that same thing to the rest of the world with no impediments towards them hearing it. Let's pray that God would give us the strength to do so. Father, we come again to your word, and we ask that you would give us the strength to do uh, what needs to be done. Uh, Give us the courage and compassion, Father. Um, Yeah to be reminded that you've called us to have an active role, all of us, in ensuring that your church is led in a way that brings you the most glory. Help us to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.